0: This is Janelle Wood, and you are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. This is an episode with a friend of mine, Eric Hernandez. Eric is the author of The Lazy Approach to Evangelism. He's also a friend of mine. We met this past summer uh, along with Lexi. Uh, Lexi I can't pronounce your last name Um, on a Maven trip uh, and I was watching Lexi and Eric lead this trip and it was amazing Um, if you don't know about Maven I will link it in the show notes it's a wonderful organization that equips young people but anyway um, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Eric Uh, he's just a delight and has so much wisdom and uh, I really appreciate his passion for people and his passion, especially for the Lord. Enjoy, friend. Hi, friend. This podcast is sponsored in part by Faithful Counseling. Life is full of ups and downs, unexpected twists and turns, and sometimes we struggle with all that can come our way. Faithful Counseling will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist who is also a practicing Christian. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help professional counseling done securely online and as someone with a master's degree in counseling psychology and whom at various times in the past 20 or so years has benefited from seeing a professional therapist I know the value that professional counseling can bring because we all need someone to talk with and faithful counseling can help please visit faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real to sign up for professional faith-based counseling It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. There's also a special offer for Finding Something Real listeners to get 10% off your first month at faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real. Thanks again to Faithful Counseling for being a sponsor of this episode. Well, welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and you are listening in for season six, where we start off each month with a different young woman sharing her story and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and Christianity. And this month, our content is being curated by a special co-host, Alice from Sweden. In our first episode together, Alice shared about her time as an exchange student in the U.S., her growing up in Sweden, and what could be described as an indifference to religion in general. She candidly talked about having been baptized and confirmed and how she celebrates Christian holidays, but she also said she doesn't believe in God, never goes to church. She talked about things that do matter to her, things like her family and her friends, but from her experience, God has not been relevant to her, and whether God exists or not has not been relevant to any of her friends despite sharing all that she graciously asked some questions for this program including if there is a God why is it so much trouble why is there so much trouble in the world how does religion affect your life and how did you become a Christian here to answer those questions and maybe more is our special guest today he's also a friend of mine and real quick just to To uh, full transparency here, I did reach out to Alice. She's uh, back in um, her home country, and she was unavailable to come today because she's in dance, Um, but she did uh, let me know that she would have liked to have been here. Um, But today's special guest is a friend of mine. Eric Hernandez is a dynamic evangelist and apologist with a heart for proclaiming the gospel and defending the faith on theological and philosophical grounds. He is a licensed minister, a certified formation therapist. I didn't know that. And is the apologetics uh, lead and millennial specialist for the Baptist General Convention of Texas. He has spoken and debated on a public level at university college campuses where he adamantly defends the Christian faith against atheist, agnostic, and deistic professors of different worldviews. He holds an associate degree in social science a bachelor's degree in theology, and a certificate in apologetics from Biola University. Welcome, Eric.
1: Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on.
0: I'm glad you're here. Um, For somebody listening, how do we know each other?
1: Uh, So through MAVEN. um, Yeah, working with MAVEN, which, uh, you know, uh, the easiest way I like to put it is we take uh, groups of students on apologetic mission trips.
0: Yeah. So for a parent listening who is interested in the Maven thing, uh, how long have you been doing the Maven mission trips? About two years. Okay. And it's group of st- groups of students who want to be better equipped, right, uh, mm-hmm. for their questions. And it's like a youth group experience or youth missions trip like none other. I've never really experienced anything yeah. like that before. And um, I got to watch you and Lexi lead that. Uh, that was just a real... A real treat and I hope for other opportunities getting to see you in your element Eric because I got to see you doing what you do incredibly well which is uh, this passionate sharing of your faith so um, before we dive into where that all came from um, for people who want to find out more about you when this conversation is over where's the best place that they can find you
1: um, they can go on my YouTube channel, uh, just Eric Hernandez, uh, type it in, or youtube.com slash Eric Hernandez. Um, also, if you want to find out what we're doing, uh, part of my job at Texas Baptist, uh, we put on three annual unapologetic evangelism conferences, and they can find information about that on uh, texasapologetics.org.
0: Okay, that's a unique name. What does it mean, unapologetic conference? What does that mean?
1: Yes. So uh, it's a play on words. So that was a title before I came on board with Texas Baptist and I I took over that and we added evangelism to it um, for a few reasons. One, because to say unapologetic is kind of a play on the word apologetics, but then a lot of people don't even still know what apologetics means, so they don't get the play on words. So – and then the emphasis, of course, is evangelism. Um, I'm an apologist because I'm an evangelist. Uh, uh, That's how it was for me at least, and you know that's how our conferences are geared towards equipping people, so – uh, we call it the Unapologetic Evangelism Conferences uh, to know that you know we're, the purpose of this isn't just to, as they say, win arguments. We want to win souls. Now, sometimes that, that encompasses winning arguments, but the main goal is to reach people for the kingdom.
0: And for somebody listening, and I, I always ask this question, but I ask it all the time. So if you're a new listener, I just want to clarify this, because for many years, I did not know this term either. What does apologetics mean and where does it come from?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so uh, in 1 Peter 3.15, which is the typical go-to verse, uh, it says to set Christ apart in your heart as Lord and always be ready to give a logical defense. Some translations say answer. And if you were to look up that word defense in the Greek, it's the Greek word apologia, which is where we transliterate and get the word apologetics. And so according to this passage, this is in a real sense a New Testament commandment to New Testament belief believers which means you are commanded by god not, not suggested they're not saying this would be a fun thing for the youth as if the scripture had an age cap on it but it's saying you are commanded by god to be ready to give an answer a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you and so to put it more bluntly i have been saying it this way uh, if you're a christian listening and you are not engaging in the discipline and task of apologetics then you're in rebellious disobedience to the word of god <laughs> And when people take issue with that, I say, look, I didn't write the book. I just read it. So you can take it up with the author, but this is what Scripture has commanded us to do.
0: Mm. Well, those are fighting words because uh, I know not too long ago I was up at a college campus and I was talking to one of the campus pastors uh, who leads uh, you know, a college group there. And I mentioned that I do a podcast and I talk a lot with apologists and uh, that there's an emphasis on apologetics with what I do. And he's like, oh, we have a different approach here. And it was almost like, uh, you know, (laughs) why are you doing apologetics? That's just old school kind of stuff. And I thought, uh... (laughs) and I was kind of taken aback. And I noticed when I started reading your book that you've kind of encountered some similar sentiment. Do you want to share a little bit about that? That's right. Yeah. Uh,
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, the book you're mentioning uh, that you have copied as well, The Lazy Approach to Evangelism. A simple guide for conversion with non-believers. Um, yeah, and the first two chapters are kind of just uh, given apologetic for apologetics, if you will. Um, because what uh, kind of even what you just shared, uh, what people don't realize is this: this is a New Testament commandment, and and we're called to do this. Uh, again, to reiterate, it's not a suggestion. Um, and I've had similar where people say, "Well, you know, let's like, the person you were talking about, I take a different approach. In my mind, that translates to, well, I don't follow scripture <laughs> or I take an unbiblical approach. Um, so so he, when, whenever people ask me what is apologetics, um, I, I typically don't always go to the verse immediately. Uh, I will at some point, but I found the best way to show people what apologetics is, is to say, let me ask you two questions and allow me to respond as a non-believer skeptic would respond. And the two questions are question one, Why are you a Christian? Mm. And then the second question is, why should someone else be a Christian? And the reason it's two questions is because I often find that a person's answer to the first question doesn't always necessarily apply to the second. So as an example of this, um, some years ago, I was invited to speak at a men's conference. And um, prior to the conference, I'm I'm there a little early, and I'm backstage with some of the other uh, speakers. And uh, the keynote speaker that evening, who was a pastor, he approached me in a kind of condescending tone and says oh so you do apologetics right and i said yeah and he said well you know what they say a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument (laughs) and i said what do you mean and he said well i have my testimony i thought god changed my life because you know i was in drugs i was in gangs i was violent i was an alcoholic i was going through a divorce but the one true god changed my life and so i don't need apologetics to defend my faith when i have my experience Well, um, my first thought was, why is this guy trying to argue with me prior to preaching on stage with me? And and I said, well, I said, setting aside the fact that you're essentially giving me an argument as to why we shouldn't use arguments. I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? (laughs) Um, Because I I once heard Bobby Conway say, if anybody tells you they don't need apologetics, then they have just revealed to you how little evangelism they actually do. Mm. So I asked him, I said, do you do any evangelism? He said, oh, yeah. And I said, what do you do? And he said, well, once, once a month, our church goes to these apartments uh, where we're located, and we set up the station, and we cook hot dogs and hamburgers, and we interact with the community. We even play basketball with the kids. And then I stand up and share my testimony. And I do this all without apologetics. And I said, that's, well, that's great. But uh, let me ask you a hypothetical about what you just said. And I said, suppose five hours later, so your church goes for lunch. Let's say five or six hours later, it's dinner time. And another group comes, and let's say they're Muslim. And they go to the same apartment complex, just where you're at, they set up a station, cook hot dogs and hamburgers, interact with the community, even play basketball with the kids. But then one of their leaders, who's, again, Muslim, stands up to share his testimony. And let's suppose his testimony was like, I don't know, 10 times better than your testimony. So, you know, he was addicted to 10 different drugs in 10 different gangs, uh, 10 bottles of alcohol prone to 10 different types of violence. And was going through 10 different divorces at once because, you know, in Islam, you can have more than one wife. Uh, But then he stands up and says, but the one true God, Allah, changed my life. Now, earlier you said, Pastor, that a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. So based on this Muslim's testimony, which according to you, no one can argue against, would you then drop to your knees, convert to Islam and devote your life to Allah? And he said, no, of course not. And I said, well, right, that's that's kind of my point. Mm. Um, Now, of course, you know, I I tell people don't hear me saying what I'm not saying, but looking at it biblically, the Bible says that the preaching of the cross is power to those who believe, which is you and I, the church, but foolishness to those who don't. So the question becomes, how do we as believers take what the world deems as foolishness to translate that and demonstrate its power? And I submit to you that is in part the discipline and task of apologetics.
0: Mm. And now I now you know why he's my friend, because <laughs> I remember watching you you know do what you do, and uh you have a real gifting um Eric, and it was fun getting to meet your parents too, and your daughter um, That's right, yeah. in June but uh have you always been passionate about sharing your faith, and how did you become a christian
1: Yeah, so great question um. Yeah, I suppose I have always been passionate, but it was more of a passion of just, um, you know, uh, uh, seeking the truth. Um, I, I I grew up in church. Um, I I could say I've always been a Christian, but you know, there were times in my life where I either had doubts or was just kind of being rebellious. Um, and I was always one to question things, uh, so much so that you know I'd get in I got in trouble on at least two occasions uh, in my youth group for asking questions, which bothered me because they would say after every service, invite your non-safe friends next week. Hmm. And I thought, no, why would I do that? If I as a Christian can ask questions, why would I, um, you know, bring someone who's not saved to come and, you know, get shut down as well? Uh, and <clears throat> so, uh, but, but that's not why I'm a Christian today, because I grew up in church or because, you know, things of that nature. Uh, I'm a Christian today because I looked at the evidence and saw that Christianity was true. And At the end of the day, one of the most important questions you can ask is, uh, is, or, or seeking the truth. What is truth? What is the truth? And. Suffice to say that as as I you know had questions and you know e- even when the church would kind of not respond, w- what makes it different for me is I hear a lot of people saying they left the church because uh, you know Christians are hypocrites or yada yada yada. But for me, that that didn't make sense to throw the baby Jesus out with the bathwater. I mean, if Christians acted hypocritical, that wouldn't disprove Christianity. No more than someone failing a math test would disprove that math is false. Right. <laughs> um, so. I just kind of began to, you know, think to myself, well, if God does exist and all truth is grounded in him, then I shouldn't be afraid to learn anything. Um, and if something's true, it's not going to contradict him. And so freshman year of college, I took my first philosophy class and and this is kind of where I got into apologetics and really kind of put me where I am now. Mm. Um, took my first philosophy class thinking it was just, I needed to fill an elective basically. And I thought, well, Philosophy is just sharing your opinion and making stuff up. And I can do that in my sleep. So (laughs) this is going to be an easy class. I could just, you know, I could maybe even skip on a few occasions, still pass. Um, Long story short, I fell in love with philosophy. Mm -hmm. One reason was because I was allowed to ask questions. I later found out my professor was an atheist. But again, I learned a lot. I enjoyed it. Next semester, I want to take another class in philosophy. But every one of my peers said, if you're going to take another class, whatever you do, don't take Professor Pena's class he's an atheist he's condescending and he's going to try to make you lose your faith and my thought was well where can i sign up um of course not because i wanted to lose my faith but but in all sincerity i i had questions and i knew that if christianity were true i needed to know why Hmm. but at the same time i realized if christianity were false i'd still like to know why and perhaps this guy for the job so here's the pivotal moment in my life and ministry that set me to where i am today Uh, This professor, he walks into class and he pretends to hold up this antidepressant pill. And he begins the lecture by saying, religion wants us to believe in something like a soul, which is supposed to be immaterial. And because of this, we can have hope in the afterlife and seeing our family and friends that have gone before us. And according to Christianity, your, your thoughts, your emotions, your sensations are all supposed to be contained within this immaterial soul. And these are also supposed to be immaterial. But the problem is... If I were to take this antidepressant pill, which is physical, it has the power to change and affect the alleged immaterial states of my soul. But how can that be? How can something tiny and physical have the power to affect the alleged immaterial? Because every time we look at the brain, scientists just see neurons firing. Every time we look at the body under a microscope, we just see the base elements of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, yada, yada, yada. But we've never found a soul. How do we explain that? And he said, well, the answer is simple. I'll tell you how. The answer is that there is no soul. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no God. There is no afterlife. You are just a physical brain and body, a meat machine. And we need to learn to live with this fact, get on with our lives, and stop believing in these fanciful, foolish fairy tales. Class dismissed, essentially. Well, what troubled me about that was a few things. Um, First, I had never met anyone that didn't believe in the soul, much less had I ever heard an argument put against it. But on top of that, something even more troubled, even uh, more so was troubling to me. Because for the first time in my life, I heard an argument that if true would prove Christianity false. To give the nutshell reason for that. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, to paraphrase, Christianity is false. And he goes as far as to say, in fact, people should actually feel sorry for us for how gullible we are for believing this to begin with. So according to scripture, if there is no resurrection, Christianity cannot be true, full stop. Well, suffice to say that according to Christianity, it's not just a body being resurrected, but me, the soul, the self. And so if there is no soul, then in principle, there could be no resurrection. And thus, by the same line of logic, according to Paul, if there's no resurrection, Christianity can't be true. So I thought to myself, I can either ignore this and sweep it under the rug, which is not my character, Or I can roll up my sleeves and get into some philosophy and learn some metaphysics, and I did the latter. Um, So that kind of, and I didn't know what apologetics was at this time. I hadn't taken a deep dive into philosophy. Um, I just knew that I've always been one to ask questions, and I'm always one to seek answers, because I want to believe what's true. If Christianity were not true, I wouldn't be a Christian. Uh, Why would you be? Um, But if it were true, my goodness, why wouldn't you be? So I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said something to the effect of, Christianity can be one or two things. It can either be the most important thing or not important at all. But the one thing it cannot be is something that's just moderately important. Um, Because, again, if Christianity is true, so much stands and falls. And if it's false, same thing. And and so as I got into this, again, learning about guys like Willem and Craig, J.P. Moreland, who just really, I mean, were just a breath of fresh air uh, to presenting uh, a lot of the evidence and arguments. And um, a a fun fact at the end of that story was – Four or five years after I graduated from this community college, suffice to say that this atheist professor was actually my first one-on-one public debate on God's existence at a church that I didn't even (laughs) attend. Um, And and just from there, just God kept opening doors for me to either speak or or, uh, teach somewhere or even uh, do some debates that I've done on occasion uh, on God's existence. And here we are today.
0: Wow. What a story. So what made you write the book?
1: Yeah, so good question. Um, So, uh, again, just kind of uh, being brief, uh, Texas Baptists, who I work for, the Baptist General Convention of Texas, they wanted to put out some evangelism resources. And they wanted to do – to kind of update a book that uh, had been written, and they wanted me to contribute a chapter in evangelism. Long story short, as I talked with um, uh, my supervisor and the other guy who had written the other book and kind of gave them my ideas, they basically said, how about you write your own book and just focus it on nonbelievers? So what's, what initially was going to be just a contribution chapter ended up being an entire book in itself. And uh, so it's called The Lazy Approach to Evangelism. And uh, the so I didn't come up with a title. I did come up with a lazy approach. Uh, in one of the chapters, I, I spell out what I call the lazy approach, which is more like a minimalist approach. and um, was actually Greg Kokel who thought of the title, The Lazy Approach to Evangelism. <laughs> um, but essentially, what I noticed was in a lot of interactions, even with other apologists, uh, when they're talking to non-believers, there's a, a lot more work being done than is needed, so to speak. Um, there, there's differences when someone makes an assertion, for example, or just or actually gives you an objection. So for example, if someone were to say, "Well, Christians are hypocrites," my quote unquote lazy approach response would be, "Go on," <laughs> and I just stay quiet. Uh, because it's not an objection, right? It's an assertion, like what nothing stands or falls on that. I'm not disagreeing with the person, but here's a, a, a better example to kind of give the overall approach. Um, so in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, Paul gives us two goals for conversing with nonbelievers. Um, his overall theme in these two verses is essentially to keep the main thing the main thing. And the first goal comes from verse 5, and he says essentially um, make the most use of your time. When you're speaking with non-believers so make the most use of your time to kind of uh, touch on that briefly I like to tell so uh, there's this notion of triage in the medical community so if I were a doctor and they rush in a patient to the emergency room let's say this patient has three wounds uh, a broken wrist a scraped knee and a bullet in their chest which would we operate first well clearly the bullet in the chest why because that's the most severe so in the medical community, this is known as triage. You're going to prioritize wounds in order of their severity. Well, if we apply this to evangelism, we can think of a notion I've heard called theological triage. So when teaching this, I ask people, suppose you knew that in exactly one hour, Christ would return. Here are four topics that you can talk about with a non-believer. Let's say you're, I don't know, stuck in the elevator for an hour with a non-believer. Here are four topics. You can talk about age of the earth, creation, evolution, biblical inerrancy, or... God exists and rose Jesus from the dead. Which do you focus on? Well, I'd say the last one. Why? Because that's what's needed for salvation. Put differently, can someone go to heaven and believe in evolution? Sure. Do I believe in evolution? No. But is that what it takes to be saved? No. In other words, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, Christ is Lord and God rose Jesus from the dead, and believe that the earth is only 6,000 years old. (laughs) Well, no, that's not what my Bible says, right? So... All that to say, we're making the most use of our time, right? Theological triage, and, and I go a lot deeper in the book, even show how Jesus did this. That's a whole uh, another story. And then the second, in verse uh, the second goal in verse six, he says, know how to answer everyone who questions you. And Paul, being very particular with his words, he says, know how to answer, as opposed to what to answer. Um, the difference being, if um, so, I, when teaching this, I like to look for uh, a young teenage guy who I know is not married. And I'll say, let me ask you a question, yes or no. Have you stopped beating your spouse? And they say, yes. And I say, oh, so you used to beat your spouse? And they say, no. And I say, so you still are? And then they look really confused. So then I whisper to them, are you married? And they say, no. (laughs) And I said, well, why don't you just say that? Now, the point being is, in this instance, with loaded questions like that, it's not important to know what to answer, but rather how to answer because within the question, there's at least two embedded assumptions. One, that you're married, and two, that you're, you're beating your spouse. But if neither of those questions apply to me, then rather than answer the question directly with the yes or no, it becomes appropriate for me to question the question. So I could say, well, time out, why would you assume, fill in the blank. And in the same way, when conversing with non-believers, you wanna make the most use of your time, and you want to know how to answer, as opposed to what to answer, right? It's it's not a script, uh, as you know. They say this, you say that. You know, I, I get bothered when I see you know evangelism kind of pitched that way, as if you know they're just gonna. You can predict everything gonna say. Um, it's it's a conversation, uh, and, and I'm I'm a firm believer that rather than learn new quote gospel presentations, we need to learn how to have better gospel conversations with people. Mm-hmm. So here's the example I, I start with in the book. <clears throat> um, A young lady once told me she was an atheist and i said well why are you an atheist and she said because i can only believe things backed by logic and evidence now what i'm going to do here is not present logic and evidence but i'm going to take what she said and use that information to ask my first why question given that she said she was an atheist i said oh okay so then what logic and evidence do you have for your belief there is no god so i'm putting the ball in her court she made a claim i want to know why Her response to that was because the Bible is full of contradictions. Now, most Christians at this point are going to start to try and defend scripture, which usually ends up leading to like a heated argument or things like that. But me taking the lazy approach, I said, my response was this. I said, and how does that prove there's no God? Mm. And she looked at me stunned because no one's ever asked her that. Instead, again, that would usually just devolve the conversation to a debate. And I said, well, let me explain it this way. If God exists, would he have existed before the Bible was written? And she said, well, I don't believe in God. I said, no, I understand that. But follow me here. If God did exist, would he have existed before the Bible was written? And she says, well, yeah, if he exists. I said, okay, great. So even if I can see the Bible is full of contradictions, how would that make God disappear out of existence, stop existing, or how would that make atheism true? What am I missing here? And with just a few questions i'm not arguing with her i'm not necessarily you know throwing her you know bible verses or evidence all i did was ask one or two maybe three questions and i already planted a seed in her mind and i've already kind of moved some ground there because when a non-believer responds to the question why are you an atheist by attacking christianity that doesn't prove atheism true you're just attacking christianity but i'm not here to. at this point i just want to gather information i don't want to know why you're not a christian i want to know specifically why you're an atheist and what a lot of people seem to be also hung up on, and I got this from Coco, is this idea that if I don't seal the deal, you know, at the end of the conversation, I felt, well, this is where Coco provides an interesting distinction between gardening and harvesting. You know, some people are are going to sow seeds, and that's great. But before there can be a harvest, there has to first be a gardener. And if you think of what a gardener does, well, gosh, he sweats on his knees and, you know, he pulls weeds, wakes up early, makes sure, you know, there's no bugs on, on you know, the plant, make sure there's proper water. And sometimes when I'm out there witnessing or evangelizing, I'm doing gardening work. And at some point, maybe I'm not the one to bring in that fruit, so to speak, but this is why Jesus said, the one who uh, sows and the one who reaps will rejoice together. Paul says, I planted another water, God gave the increase. And so, you know, the lazy approach is, you know, not getting bogged down into these uh, rabbit trails that aren't even relevant as to whether or not Christianity is true or false. Because at the end of the day, there are at least two things that make Christianity true. One, God exists, and two, Jesus rose from the dead. If those two things are true, Christianity is true, full stop. And every other question becomes a secondary question, not relevant to the truth or falsity of Christianity, but maybe relevant to discipleship or understanding our theology a little bit better. But again, if God exists and Jesus rose from the dead, no matter what other objection a person may have, Christianity is true.
0: Okay. I want to get into that a little bit, but first, I want you to give me some lazy approach to evangelism with a couple real life examples, because I just want to hear what you have to say. Friend, if you're enjoying this episode, you may also enjoy exclusive bonus content each month. Finding Something Real is a podcast that has some costs associated with it. We have a website, monthly subscriptions to stay organized. We design things. We like to pay an assistant producer who keeps things going around here, that kind of stuff. We're not in the business of trying to make money, but we are in the business of wanting to keep this show going and be sustainable. So we use Patreon, and if you haven't heard of it, Patreon is the best place for creators to build memberships by providing exclusive access to their work and a deeper connection with their communities. Each month, patrons who support Finding Something Real get a bonus episode where we recap the month's episodes. Often those episodes feature our co-hosts, and they will often share what this journey was like. There's other perks over there, too, and it's easy to get involved. Just go to findingsomethingreal.com and click support at the top of the page. We'd love to have you over there in our Patreon community. So I want to give you some real examples that have come up both with alice and yesterday just talking to somebody who's not a believer we were just having a conversation at the coffee shop and she says Mm -hmm. to me and and because this podcast is for people with questions and maybe one of them's listening right um so anyway she says to me after i say oh i'm gonna pray for you because she's going through some hard stuff she kind of chuckles like scoffs uh she's been through Mm -hmm. a lot of pain associated with christianity and she says, you know, that's good for you. Actually, it reminded me of our role-playing when we were at Maven <laughs> like, with the that's kids. Right. It was pretty much exactly like that. Uh, that's good for you, um, but I'm fine the way things are. And, uh, you know, prayer has never done anything for me. And, um, you know, religion is just used to control people. How would you respond to somebody with that objection?
1: Yeah, so she's making a claim, and and, and I'm going to explain it in a way that I wouldn't necessarily say all this in the conversation, but she's making a claim. And in one of the first few chapters, I talk about something called the burden of proof, um, which essentially if someone makes a claim, then, then they then bear a burden to provide evidence or reasons for why they believe that claim to be true. So she said, you know, religion is just a a crutch or whatever to control people. My question would be, Oh, um, and, and how did you come to this conclusion or what, what evidence do you have of that? And on top of that, I would say, well, can truth be used to control people? Or can truth be abused? Because at the end of the day, like I said earlier, my my main question is, is something true or false? So if she were to say, well, again, religion is used to control people, I might say, oh, what do you mean by that? You know, Greg Coco's two questions. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? I would want to know what she meant by that. Um, and then I would also ask her, well, can a religion be true? Or even if it is used to control people, let's say people twist it or manipulate it. Could a specific religion still be true? Because what I want to get at is what what does she mean by this? Is she saying that if religion can be abused, it is therefore false? Well, it doesn't make sense, right? Um, money can be a great blessing, but it can also be abused. But money still exists, right? We don't we don't throw away our money. Um, lots of things can be abused, but again, is it true or false? So it sounds like she's lumping together two things into one. Um, whether or not religion can be used as a weapon or to control people, but sure, it can. But there's also the other question whether or not it's true. And then I would even, you know, ask her about Jesus. You know, do you think Jesus was trying to control people? Because what control did Jesus get? Well, he got ostracized by his family, didn't have a lot of money, and he was killed in one of the most painful, torturous ways you could in that time period. What control did he get? You know, so I, I would just be curious as to what she means by that and what she's getting at and whether or not she thinks that that somehow would invalidate the truth or falsity of her religion.
0: Okay, so another person, maybe Alice and she's not here to speak for herself, so I'll just, you know, what's the word? (laughs) I don't know, advocate on her behalf. Maybe she'd say, maybe it's true, maybe not, but my life is working just fine the way it is right now. Why should I care whether Christianity is true? Um, What's, you know, what difference does it make? And this isn't just a question, you know, that comes from the other side of the ocean, right? I mean, I was just listening to or reading uh, an article by Natasha Crane where she was responding to a viral post that went out where a former Christian says, at the end of the day, I don't care whether Christianity is true. I care what's helpful, and it's not helpful for me anymore. So how do you respond to to that whole idea of post-truth, uh, who cares what's right or wrong?
1: Yeah, so it would just really depend on on what I know about the person or what they're trying to get at so you know a few of the other um without going through each one uh in in detail like the second uh, part of the of the lazy approach is to reword a person's position to either remove the fluff or provide a counterexample, um emphasize rebuttals i'll talk about later identifying logical fallacies and knowing whether they're giving you an objection or an assertion so to what you asked about um you know i don't care whether or not you know it's true or false my life's just fine you know i Depending on the situation of person, I would like to know what the person cares about because I want to apply what they said and see if that applies to other things. So for example, um, if they say I only care whether or not it's helpful, or not whether or not it's true, well, slavery was helpful to some people. Um, but it was morally wrong. But if there is no moral objective moral truth or falsity to a position or a claim or an action, well, then where do we draw the line? You know, or you know, do you think that, you know, everybody should be treated with equal well, with equal respect and dignity if the answer is yes why what makes us special uh what makes human beings uh, uh worthy of any kind of uh, equality or treatment um whether or not because essentially they're implying that god's existence or truth of christianity is irrelevant to their lives well first that's not true um they may think it is but you think about this if there is no god would anything exist well i would say no so i would ask the person well do you like existing you know, or do you think you know? Uh, so, for example, I was talking with someone once about um, uh, they they were talking about uh, that they kind of which are appealing to is postmodernism, which is one of the three dominant strongholds I talk about in the book relativism. And you know, there are people in one breath will say, well, there is no objective morality, there's no objective right or wrong; it's just you know depends on the society or people. But then in another breath will claim something like uh, the legalization of same-sex marriage was moral progress. The problem with relativism is that one of the many problems is that it is unlivable. So, <clears throat> if there is no objective morality and everything is just relative, well, consider that you know when I was in high school we had a certain dress code. You can only wear certain color shirts. Uh, you know and they had to be button downs and all this stuff. Now there was nothing moral or immoral about wearing a different color shirt. I mean you might get detention or whatever, but it was it was an arbitrary rule that the school came up with. There was nothing objective about it. And then a few years later, uh, they lightened up the rules to allow other color shirts and then now polos instead of you know those, those button downs. Well, was that moral progress or just neutral change? Well, it wasn't moral progress because it wasn't moral to begin with. It was just an arbitrary change. So in the same way, if it is genuine moral progress for the legalization of same-sex marriage, well, wait a minute. That can't be moral progress. It was just neutral change. And you can't say that it was an advancement of morality or an advancement of progress because moral progress assumes that there is an objective purpose that we're trying to aim to. Moral progress assumes we are progressing towards a an objective purpose goal or in. But if there is no objective purpose goal or in, you can't call it moral progress. So whether we allowed slavery or same-sex marriage, it doesn't matter. It's all relative. And one was helpful, one wasn't, and then we just changed our mind. But it wasn't morally good to do that. Now, when I'm talking with someone, in one instance, someone kind of got upset and said, well, that that's not right. Of course it was moral progress. And my response is, well, then that would imply an objective moral purpose and goal and a design to us. And if that's the case, well, how can you have that without God? Um, that gets into the moral argument, which I won't get into, but here's the point. Note how something as simple as progress or change or morality is foundational to whether or not there is a God, to whether or not Christianity is true. Because if if there is no God, if there is no Christianity aside from us not existing, what would make something objectively right or wrong? And if there is none, which a lot of atheist scholars would concede, if there is no God, there is no objective morality, then it really doesn't matter whether you are for slavery or against slavery, for equality or not for equality. It's just your preference. you know? You know. like mm-hmm. I like Taco Bell. You like McDonald's. But at the end of the day, it's just a different preference. Yeah. So if there's no God, I would say that alone, when there's much more to talk about, but that alone would have a huge impact on the way one should live their lives, as opposed to what they prefer, helpful or not helpful.
0: Yeah, well, one of the questions that Alice asked was about suffering. And instead of just asking you about the suffering question, Eric, as you were talking, I was thinking, man, I remember when we were back in LA and you were talking to the kids about um, what would happen if you experienced tremendous tragedy. And you went through this talk, and it probably was only it was probably five, maybe 10 minutes. But you went through, and the way you described how apologetics helps you go through that whole process of from tragedy to reassurance, it was very compelling. I'm sure it's a talk you've given before, I would guess. But I was wondering if you'd share that because when you were talking, um, there was a moment where I thought, this is why I'm here to be honest, because what you were talking about is why I got involved in apologetics. I remember going through tragedy and going, okay, what anchors me here? Um, Suffering Mm -hmm. has a way of reorienting everything. So I know you've shared a lot about philosophy in your book. By the way, you can find it on Amazon, The Lazy Approach to Evangelism. But I'd love for you to share personally what would happen if you experienced suffering and it was uh, you know, cut deep because I felt like that that conversation that you gave to the kids, uh, that hope that you anchored them in was really beautiful. And it was something that really pointed back to the gospel. Would you mind sharing that?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, in, one, in that talk too, I believe there was even, you know, some of the things that causes doubt or frustration, I think, in some people, even Christians and even people who claim to formerly be Christian are um, theologically false expectations. Um, so, you know, especially when people ask about, you know, I I spend, I have two whole chapters on morality, one specifically on the problem of evil. Um, but, you know, sometimes people say, well, if God exists and why did X happen? You know, why did, you know, my parents get divorced? Why did this person die? Um, and if I were talking to that person, I would again, use a question, something like, well, are you implying that if God exists, anybody under the age of, you know, fill in the blank shouldn't die? Are you implying that if Christianity are true, then there would be no suffering in the world? Well, note that the answer to that, if the answer is yes, well, that's not what Scripture teaches. And as Christians, you know, we we, we know what God's revealed through Scripture. Um, but going back to, you know, what you're asking is the point being is this. The truth of Christianity is not dependent on my existence, on my personal testimony, on my emotions, on what I feel helpful or not helpful. There, there are a lot of things that are true that I don't find helpful. In fact, there are a lot of things true I don't like. I don't like mosquitoes. But not liking mosquitoes doesn't make them cease to exist. Um, I'm lactose intolerant, unfortunately. But my hating, you know, the fact that I can't because I love – and I've developed that. It's a whole other story um, because I used to be lactose intolerant. I love eating cookies and milk. I love anything with dairy. But now I have to take medication before I eat that or I'll have some serious problems later. But my dislike for that doesn't make it not true. And if I say, well, if I stop believing I'm lactose intolerant, well, then maybe it'll be more helpful to my happiness. Well, none of that matters, right, to whether or not it's true or false. So I would, you know, there's been times in my life where, yeah, I've experienced suffering. And, you know, if God forbid something were to happen to my family, um, yeah, it would be emotionally problematic. But, but there's a difference between emotional objections and intellectual objections. Uh, the difference in a nutshell is that an intellectual objection can be written down like in an argument an emotional objection can't um in the book i give you an example actually on the problem of evil where someone says my biggest obstacle to belief in god is the existence of evil and i said well explain that and they said um well god exists and he's all loving right And i said yeah yeah and he said well there's so much evil in the world lazy approach my response was go on (laughs) and he said well just that god is all loving yes and evil exists yes Now, I'm not trying to be cute or pedantic with this person, but recall that he said his biggest objection to belief in God was the amount of evil and suffering. So if he wants a response from me, I need to know what the objection actually is because so far he hasn't given me an objection. He's just restated what he doesn't want or feel or doesn't like to be the case. But this is no different than saying if grass is green, the sky shouldn't be blue. Well, why not? Right? Where's the contradiction? So um, at one point I said, well, let me see if I understand you correctly, because essentially it was an emotional objection, not necessarily an intellectual. one." Now, there are intellectual objections from the problem of evil. I'm not saying there's not, but what he was sharing was wasn't an, uh, an intellectual one. And I said, um, well, could I as a loving father take my kids to the dentist, knowing it would include painful shots? His response, interestingly, and again, this is using a question, and this is also rewarding the position, and this is uh, you know uh, discerning that this is not an, an objection, it's just an assertion. And I said, uh, he said, yes, but only because there's a greater good coming out of it. And I said, well, OK, so if you can concede that I as an earthly father can be loving while allowing suffering in the lives of my children, then I'm having trouble how you can't apply that to God as a heavenly loving father and yet still allow suffering in our lives. In other words, he pretty much made the point for me. Now, going back to what you were, you were asking about, <clears throat> yeah, there's been times in my life where either I feel upset with God or I feel something should have happened or, you know. Gosh, someone in my life passed away. You know that that was close to me. You know that there there's times where, especially at night, which is tends to be when you're more mentally tired, it's when these doubts appear to arise more. And there's times where I've thought to myself and sat and said, "Okay, I'm emotionally troubled, but what what where does this take me?" And I said, "Well, if Christianity is false, well, what what there's no hope you know uh, to have, but that doesn't make it true just because it it makes me feel better, maybe it gives me hope. So at the end of the day, like you said, what anchors me? And sometimes I will walk myself through the apologetic arguments I've come become familiar with, through, through the things I've learned in my life. So it might sound something like this. <clears throat> so I'll stop and think, okay, is Christianity true? Well, first question, does God exist? Well, gosh, yes, he has to. And... Well, why? Well, because something like the argument from contingency, which is I think like chapter 18 or something in my book, um, which essentially states that if anything contingent exists, something necessary must exist. What does that mean? Well, I don't have to exist. So you have to, I'm what you call contingent. Had my parents never met, I wouldn't exist. So how do I explain my existence? Well, I can point to my parents. Well, the problem with that is that they too are contingent. So now in order to explain my existence, I have to explain theirs. Well, I can explain theirs with their parents. Well, their parents are contingent. And note, if you keep going back, it's kind of like giving someone a check without funds in the bank. If someone – if I, if you need money and I write you a check and say, but I don't have the money, cash it tomorrow, and then I got to get – now I got to put the money in the bank. I go to somebody else and say, can I borrow five bucks? And they write me a check and says, yes, but don't cash it tomorrow because I don't have the money. Well, if that keeps happening, when you cash that check tomorrow, it's going to bounce. Let's suppose it doesn't. What would that imply? All things being equal, that would imply that at some point down the chain – There was someone who already had the money that did not need to borrow that money from someone prior. Let's call that someone who was an owning lender. He owned the money in order to lend it, whereas everybody else in the chain was a borrowing lender. They borrowed the money in order to lend it to the next person. Well, this owning lender would be necessary if you got the money the next day when you cash a check. Now apply that to existence. I exist, but I borrowed existence from my parents and they from their parents. Well, just like the check analogy, if you keep Going back with borrowing lenders, I wouldn't exist. But guess what? I'm here. (laughs) So what does that imply? That would imply that with respect to existence, there must have been an owning lender, namely a, a, a being that has always existed and did not have to borrow existence from something prior, but has always existence, is eternal and necessary, and was able to give rise to every other contingently existing thing. That's what we call God. So automatically, okay, there must be a necessary being. And then, you know, I keep going through some of the arguments, even, you know, Kalam, okay, if if everything has a beginning, it needs a cause, time, space, and matter begin. So whatever caused time, space, and matter must have been timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. That's what we call God as well. Okay, so I'm walking myself through this, and then I also think, okay, but, but wait a minute. Even if this God exists, I mean, how do I know he's not just playing with my life? How do I know he's not just, you know, using me as a pawn? Well, God is a maximally great being. What does that mean? God is not just the greatest God that happens to exist who wins by default. Um, and some came up with this concept that God is a maximally great being, a being that not just the greatest being that does exist, but the greatest being that could conceivably possibly exist to begin with. And part of being a maximal great being is to be all perfect and all loving. Well, why did this happen in my life? Well, if God exists, he must be all loving, but also all knowing. So maybe there's something that he knows that I don't, that he allowed this to happen in my life. And if God is all just, he's going to bring some type of reconciliation, even if not in this life, then possibly the next. So I'm walking myself through, okay, God exists. He's necessary. He's maximally perfect. He's all loving. He also is all knowing. So if he allowed something in my life to happen, then maybe he knows something I don't. So I could still be able to trust him because he is a maximally great, perfect, necessary being. Okay, but what about? Okay, but, but what about, you know, does he have this all planned out? Well, well what makes Christianity true? with well, the resurrection, okay, did Jesus rise from the dead? And I'll begin to do that as well. Well, yeah, you have an empty tomb, post-mortem appearances. The origin of Christianity is, is uh, solidified in the fact that disciples believe that Christ rose from the dead. There was an empty tomb. They saw him after death, and I, I begin to walk myself through all this. And then after about, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour, d- depends on, you know, what I'm going through, I, I sit back and think, okay, there is a God who loves me sent a son to die for me a god who wants a relationship with me i'm in fellowship with him and does my emotional troubles right now is that sufficient to override everything i just went through absolutely not again even if that doesn't give me the answers in this life i know i can put my trust and confidence which is what faith is it's a trust and confidence in something i can put my trust and confidence in a maximally great necessary all loving all knowing omnipresent god that wants a relationship with me Mm. And at the end of the day, that's what I'm anchored in, not my emotions, not how you know how well I'm doing at my job or work, not how I feel, but in the fact that God exists and rose Jesus from the dead. And what I love is that when you look at all the other religions, every religion says you have to do something in order to reach God. Christianity is the only religion that says you can never reach me. And because you can't come to my love and reach me, I'll step down in human flesh and come reach you mm-hmm. because that's how bad I want to be with you. Mm-hmm. And so it's not nothing I did, but it's putting my trust and confidence in a God who I have evidence, reason, and logic to know he exists and to know that he wants a relationship with me.
0: Yeah, I love that. We're running out of time here, but I have a couple final questions for you. And one of those is the question that Alice asked, which is how does religion affect your life? And I guess I'd love for you to share not um, the strategy behind how you would respond, but really how maybe a heartfelt thing for Alice, who maybe isn't interested in changing her life right now. Um, How has faith in Jesus changed your life, Eric?
1: Yeah, so um great question. I, I think the deeper question behind that is whether or not, again, going back to whether or not it's true, because you know, we part of Maven, which we'll, we'll be doing what next month, we'll be going to Utah and you know gosh mormons are some of the nicest people with some of the best quote unquote testimonies right you can't out testimony a mormon (laughs) and they will tell you how mormonism has changed their life has maybe made them better parents made their family grow stronger but at the end of the day is it true or false um so when it comes to religion it's not just a matter of helpfulness it's a matter of whether it's true or false because again i can believe things that are false that might be helpful but at the end of the day, it's, it's, I'd be living a lie, right? If I believe tomorrow that I'm the richest person in the world and went out and started spending money, within a few months, I'm going to lose my house, my car, my job, everything else. So it's whether or not it's true. But the great thing is, is that Christianity is not only, quote unquote, helpful, but it's true. Because if there is a God again who loves me, sent a son to die for me, wants a relationship with me then my goodness, there are huge implications. Then, then there is a design to our bodies. There is a an objective right or wrong. There is um, that we do live in a fallen world that we were not meant to be. You know, the scripture says we are in this world but not of this world. It also means that this is not the only life. It means that, you know, my friends and family that have passed away who were saved, I have hope in seeing them again. Now, to reiterate, this doesn't make it true, but the fact that it is true makes it awesome because that hope is grounded in something genuine. In, in finding something real if you will and, and it also lets me know that my goodness even if i don't know um what tomorrow is going to be like i know that god's in control i know that i'm in god's hands I, I once heard the saying i don't know what tomorrow holds but i know who holds tomorrow and knowing that i can do nothing to save me i can do nothing to change my life i i like to put it this way if my computer were to break down you know i could try to fix it myself but I can't. <laughs> I don't know much about computers, much less fixing them. So what I would have to do is even though I own the computer, it's under my name. I bought it with my money. I would have to send it back to the manufacturer who made it, who can and is equipped to fix it. When the same way I didn't cause myself to come into existence, even though this is my life, my body. Uh, um, it, it's what it, it's the, the skin I've been living in for 36 years. When I break down, I can't fix myself. So gosh, the best thing I can do is send my send myself back to the manufacturer you will, if you will, and say, I need I need you to change me because I know you're the one that made me, you're the one that created me, and you love me. You want a relationship with me. So how about I just give you everything? Mm. That's that's the the effect it has on my life. Again, not just because it brings me hope, but because it's true. And the fact that it's true gives me that confidence in that hope, that confidence that again this isn't the life, this world wasn't meant for us. We're made for another world. And I think C.S. Lewis says, if, if you know, I find myself with certain desires, you know, I have a desire for food, you know, where well, well, there's food, I have a desire, you know, a, a duck has a desire for, you know, to swim, well, there's something that's water, you know, water exists. And he said something like, and if I find a desire in me, in which nothing in this world can satisfy, then it must follow that I was made for a different world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it, it affects my life in so many ways. It teaches me how to love people, how to treat people, especially in this day and age where it's very individualistic and self-centered. You know, unfortunately, I I find people who've left Christianity, you know, you, you alluded to that earlier. They may say, I'm no longer Christian, and I'm so much happier now. At the risk of sounding cold-hearted, you know, sometimes I think, well, why does that matter as to whether or not it's true? Why? Now, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm... I'm happy that people are happy, if you will. But at the end of the day, gosh, life is not about happiness. I have a five-year-old son, 14-year-old daughter. There's a lot of things I allow or don't allow in their lives that do not make them happy. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with telling my son, no, you cannot have another you know, cookie or you can't have a cookie before your dinner. He may not like that. But at the end of the day… My job isn't to make them happy my job is to build help build and raise a person who who can be self-sufficient who who knows how to treat people with dignity um who knows how to to treat women at the end of the day who knows how to to live a lifestyle that's going to honor god but none of that matters if there is no god and christianity is not true Mm. so even though there are things that don't make them happy at the end of the day again is it true or false and if christianity is true my goodness what hope we have and there, there are so many other ways it's affected my life, but again, at the end of the day, I know that I serve a God that loves me, that created everything. And my goodness, I can't wait to meet him You know, in, in, in heaven, so to speak. Of course, I've met him already, but I, I can't wait to, to just – as Paul said, uh, um, these momentary afflictions compare nothing to this eternal way to glory. And if you know anything about Paul, he had more than momentary afflictions. I mean he was whipped, shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead, stoned. So my goodness, there's hope. There's things to ground our hope, our love, our uh, uh, morality in. But again, that can only be the case if God exists Hmm. and Christianity is true.
0: Yeah. Well, this conversation has gone by pretty fast, but this is the final question. The Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration. Eternity, Authenticity, and Love. Real is an acronym. Restoration, Eternity, Authenticity, and Love. Those are all things that as believers uh, we know can ultimately be found in Jesus Christ. Of all those things, restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love, which stands out to you the most in your life right now, and why?
1: Wow. I don't know if I could pick one, but I mean, yeah, I don't know if I can pick one. Restoration, and eternity for sure. Um, because again, going back to what I was just saying here. So you know, earlier this year in January, my um, my father in law passed away, unexpected, um, and it was dragged out. And you know, and my wife, you know, she's you know keep her in your prayers. And you know, she she has her days. And some years ago, one of my best friends passed away, and I remember you know when when I read that, I just my goodness, I just broke down and started crying and thought, man, there but there's so much we didn't do. We had so many plans. And knowing, though, you know, of course I mourned, and, and don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. You know, it's okay to cry as a believer. It's okay to cry as a Christian. Um, but then there was that hope that, again, this – I've heard it said death is not a period. It's just a comma. Um, so knowing that – my goodness, again, when 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 Jesus rose from the dead, you know, that that saying death wears your sting, death wears your victory, you know. At the end of the day, that's going to be defeated, because uh, as I've heard Frank Turk say, um, you know, when you die, you don't you don't cease to exist; you just change locations. And to know that, despite what happens in this life, no matter how much little or more money I get, or you know how many you know how big my house is, what whatever car I have, at the end of the day, none of that's going to matter in eternity. Mm-hmm. And and I like to think of it this way: what what was my worst day in elementary school? I don't remember, but I know that at the time, whatever it was, it felt like my life was over, right? And that could have been something as silly as they didn't have chocolate milk during lunch, right? But I thought, you know, the world's over. Like, oh my gosh, I can't live on. Well, I look back and it's no longer the worst day of my life, but at the time it was horrendous to me. But why is it not? Well, because I've grown. I've matured. My perspective of life has changed. I, I've, I've expanded my, my understanding of how the world works. And I look back and it's so insignificant. <clears throat> so if we're to put that whole timeline in my life till now, let's say on a 12 inch, you know, on, on a ruler, that day in elementary school wasn't even a centimeter of that ruler. Well, let's say you don't have the best life here, but you put your trust in God. You close your eyes on this side of heaven. You open your eyes in heaven. How long will we be in heaven? 10, 20, 30, 50, 80, 100 years now. A million? Keep going. Infinite. So take that ruler and then now add, not just a few inches, add a few hundred thousand miles, and then keep going and keep going. Now what would that life look like in comparison to eternity? Almost insignificant when it came to what you went through. And this is, this is where I really grasp Paul saying these momentary afflictions compare nothing to the eternal weight of glory. We have so much to look forward to. But it's not just an escapist mentality because there is so much here too that I look forward to uh, of being able to raise my kids, being with my family, loving my wife, uh, getting to meet new people, getting to interact with people like yourself. The fact that we we have a body of Christ gives me comfort that I don't have to do it all myself. I don't have to know it all. You know, the Bible says that we are one body but with many members. You know, you do things I can't. You do things so well. I love that you do this podcast. You know, something I couldn't do. But I'm gifted in other areas. Well, guess what? We don't have to be each other we can come together and work together in this way. Mm -hmm. So you have that community, you have that relation, you have that hope, you have that assurance, and then my goodness, you have eternity, which I am looking forward to, and and I cannot wait.
0: Mm. Amen. Well, Eric Hernandez, thank you so much for being on this podcast. You are the real deal, and I really have appreciated getting to know you. And uh, for those of you listening um, who are Christians, please go get its book, The Lazy Approach to Evangelism. Um, I just really appreciate you taking the time. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month, and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences, and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that. But if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with him. Until next time.